kind of getting into the message. Uh, I, I joked with someone, I almost uh, resigned this week because I, uh, I've never had a passage like whip me as bad as this passage did this week. I thought I was going to cover nine verses today. That was the plan. But the more I kept reading it, I don't know if you've ever had a piece of food or gum or something that just gets bigger and bigger as you're chewing it. And that's what happened with this passage. And so finally about, I think, Wednesday or so, I realized we can't do nine verses. We're going to have our hands full with four verses today. And it's not just what the passage says. It's how to present it, knowing our audience that's here and and trying to hopefully make it relevant and applicable to each of us. And so I'll go ahead and, and mention... Uh, I will not do this passage justice. Uh, You get 10 different preachers preach on this passage. You would have 10 different approaches, I promise you. Uh, But if you'll right now, I'm going to invite you, for real. And here's why. Today's message will have a few parts in it that gets a little technical and theological. Now, this is not a slam. This is not a slam. God's made us all different. Some of you, you love preaching, but if you had to rank, your least favorite is the technical theological sermon. And this one's going to have some of those aspects to it at times. So I want to encourage you, stay the course. Ask the Lord, like right now, before we even look at the passage, say, Lord, keep speaking to me and help me to have ears to hear, even in the technical theological aspects of this. Uh, So with that in mind, we are going to do a brief review. Uh, Those of you who have been with us in the book of Romans, some of you are here for the first time. And I pray that the Lord will speak to you out of this book, not from me, but from him through his word. But if you've been with us, you know that the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Romans, I mean, he has been just laser focused, hammering away at the same theme, passionately. I mean, if you were to read this just multiple times, you'd say, wow, this guy for three or four chapters, now he's hit chapter four, he just keeps hitting the same thing from a slightly different angle and just saying it the same way over and over. I mean, he's incessant, he's passionate, he's relentless. And you almost, those of you who've been here, you're probably thinking, okay, we got it. Let's move on. And Paul's like, well, let's talk about Abraham again. And you're like, we just talked about Abraham. We're going to talk about Abraham again today and next week too, Lord willing. Why? Because this is that important. You say, what's he so passionate and relentless and laser focused on? Here it is. How we get saved. Call it going to heaven. Call it eternal life. Getting saved. Born again. Whatever you want to call it. He just keeps hitting the same thing. And here it is. You get born again. You go to heaven by faith. Alone. But catch what I'm about to say. It's not just faith For faith's sake, I believe I'm going to heaven. That will not get you there. It is faith alone in Jesus alone. And he gives us salvation. He gives grace. We exercise trust and faith, which is not a work. He speaks, we listen, we receive. That's how you get saved. That's the only way. It was back in chapter 3. Look at verse chapter 3. I had you turn to chapter 4, but look at chapter 3, verse number 20. In case you've missed it, it's been all in the passages. For by works of the law, whether you say me being good, my do-gooding, my moral keeping of the law. Well, the Bible says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You say, well, what about if I do the, since I can't do the moral aspect of the law, what if I keep the ceremonial, all the offerings and things Verse 20, again, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was never given for us to keep, whether the moral part, all the do's and the don'ts, or the ceremonial offerings and sacrifices, that part is not even designed to save us. That was pointing to something. It's in chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith, Apart from works of the law. Twice you've seen that word justified. I want to remind you justification is not so much where God makes us righteous. Because listen, you have to have righteousness to go to heaven. You say, I want to go to heaven. You have to have righteousness. You don't have any righteousness. 
So what is justification? Justification is not so much where God makes us righteous in the moment. It's where he declares us righteous. It's where he starts treating us as righteous. But Lord, how can you do that? Watch, by faith. Have you ever done this? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, what he did on the cross to count for you, the Lord counts that as righteousness. And that brings us up to chapter 4. I don't think I gave the the title of the message last week, but it would have been this. Abraham, the test case for justification. Paul hits chapter 4, and to prove his point, he's like, I want to talk about Abraham. Paul, why are you going to talk about Abraham? Because my Jewish audience here, they're the main ones I have to convince that the only way to be saved is by faith and not by works. And so I'm going to bring Abraham in as the example. Why Abraham? Because they accept him as the, the patriarch. They accept him as their biological forefather. And they accept him as the greatest example of a righteous man. So Paul says, I'm going to use Abraham. And he brings him forefront. In other words, Paul is saying to his Jewish audience, could we agree that if anyone's in heaven... Abraham is, and they would say, absolutely. We know biblically Abraham is in heaven right now. Paul says, how did he get there? Let's see what the Bible says. And So for context, our text today is verses 9 through 12. But I want to go back and read verses 1 through 8 again. Would you join me reading this? Paul asks, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Again, a couple of ways to look at that phrase, according to the flesh. It could mean Abraham, our forefather, uh, our biological forefather, according to the flesh. Or you could read it this way. What shall we say was gained by Abraham by, in his flesh, in his human effort? And then we pointed out that a key word in verse number 2 is the word if. For if Abraham was justified by works, if he impressed God so much that he could... He could Have God declare him righteous because of his works? Yes, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Why? Because the if is impossible. Abraham was a sinner just like everyone else. Verse 3 is the key verse. Paul says, what does the scripture say? Really, let's look at what the Bible says. Not what the preachers say, not what the rabbis say, not what the person on the blog says. What does the Bible say? Abraham believed God. And it, his belief, was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4 and 5 offers two ways that some folks try to go to heaven, only one of which actually works. Verse 4 doesn't work, but many try it. Now to the one who works, I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to be righteous and holy and godly and do all the do's and don't do the don'ts. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he's going to work his, his way to heaven, he thinks. And he's going to make it so much so that God's going to be so impressed. God, you owe me eternal life in heaven. Well, there's no gift there. There's no grace there. And that fails. Verse 5, the way that does work. To the one who does not work. Okay, I want to go to heaven, and so I'm not going to work for it. What are you going to do? But believes in him, God, who justifies, declares righteous. What kind of people? The ungodly. You say, that's me, I'm the ungodly. The Bible says his faith. Right, verse 3, Abraham's faith. But verse 5 says his faith. If you do it the believing way, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here, verse 6 again. Just as David also, same thing David says, what we saw in the life of David, saw in the life of Abraham to be true. Verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Where did David say that? Psalm 32, verse 7 quotes it. Blessed, you say, who are the blessed? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Three things happen in this passage where Paul is talking about the life of Abraham and he's bringing out three events. By the way, they're all in chapter chapter 4, verse 3. The first one is implied. This is recapping. Did you see it? You say, well, I see Abraham did something and then God did something. Right, what was the first thing? Here's the first thing. God approached Abraham and made him. I like to word it this way. God made Abraham some wild promises. Wild promises. Last week we looked at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. We'll see those, one of those a little later. You say, what are the wild promises? Here's a man, Abraham, living in a city called Ur, a very large city, a very wicked city, polytheistic, idolatrous city, and that's the kind of man Abraham was when the one true God approached him and said, hey, Abraham, yes, 
I'm the one true God, okay? All these are false and fake and phonies, okay? Here's what I'm going to do. I will bless you, just letting you know. And so here comes the blessing. He says, I'm going to make, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I know you don't have any kids and your wife is old and you're old and she's barren. She can't have kids, but I'm just telling you, you're going to have children come from you. You're going to be a great nation. Your name is going to be great. For the rest of time on earth, man, man will look back and say that you, through you, you are a blessing to all the families of the world. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so much that when other people are good to you, I'm going to be good to them. When other people mistreat you, I'm blessing you so much, you are the apple of my eye. If they mistreat you, they will have to deal with me. I will put a curse on them. That's how much I love you. I'm going to bless you. In fact, Abraham, though you have no descendants, you will have descendants, and they will have a special, special land. Abraham, I'm giving you a blessing. I'm giving you a special land. Now leave here. You know what Abraham did? So God approached Abraham, gave him these wild promises. Abraham very simply believed. That's all he did. Okay. And I know how we think. Here's what we do. We say, well, Abraham got up and he left. Remember, he left Ur of the Chaldees. He did. But I would remind you, I wrote this down the other day. Abraham didn't leave Ur to earn the blessing or secure the blessing or seal the blessing. Abraham left Ur and went in in search of this city, this land that God was going to give him because he actually believed he really is blessed. There's a difference. That's subtle. Did you catch it? Abraham, where are you going? I'm leaving here. Where are you going? I'm going looking for another land. Why? God said I'm blessed and I believe it, so I'm going to go look for it. His leaving didn't save him. He left because he believed God. His belief is what saved him. As the third thing happened in your notes, God said, I see your faith in my promise. I count your faith as righteousness. Now with that in mind, let's very quickly read our four-verse text today, verse number nine. Paul steps back and asks, Is this blessing then, is this blessing only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. Is it just for one group or can it also include another? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? And really what Paul is saying is when did it happen? How was it counted? Abraham had righteous, Abraham had faith and that's what brought his righteousness. Can it, is it just the circumcised or can it be the uncircumcised? So to answer his question, verse 9, he answers in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Did Abraham have this, this, this blessing from God? Did he have this righteousness declared over him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had. I'm going to back up and read verse 11. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to add a word. I'm adding a word. I, I hope it, it clicks in your mind as not harming the scripture, hopefully to make it a little stronger so that we get it in English. You'll see the word I add, verse 11 again. He received, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already, that's my word, he already had by faith. He already had the righteousness. God gave him the sign, the seal of circumcision while he was still uncircumcised. The faith he already had while still uncircumcised, then God gave him the sign of circumcision. Why? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That's a lot of people. They believe but haven't been circumcised. Is that possible? Abraham's their father. So that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. What about later on when he was circumcised? Well, he's going to be the father of another group, according to verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised. They're not just circumcised, but who also, don't confuse the action word here, keep reading, who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. They're walking in the footsteps, so their walk is affected by the faith. The faith is first. Who also, so they're circumcised. In verse 12, there's a group that is circumcised, but they also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, could you imagine if we were dealing with that today and we're going to go through down to verse 17, you'd be like, man, that, I'm confused already, right? This, this is a little bit of a difficult passage. I want us to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what is the blessing? What is the blessing? 
as you just let your eyes peruse over chapter 4, I want you to see some things that the, bless, the, the, the way Paul describes the blessing. What is it? What is this blessing that David wrote about, that Abraham experienced, that is possible for these different types of people? What exactly is the blessing? Verse number 6 words it this way. It's when God counts righteousness to a person without them having to work for it. Let that sink in. Have you ever had the blessing? Have you ever had the blessing? So run it by me again. What's the blessing? It's when God counts righteousness to a person and they didn't have to work for it. Picture it this way. God's the judge. You have a column of sins called lawless deeds and sins. You have a column of sins. There are many. And then you have this column of righteousness, which according to chapter 3, we don't have any righteousness. You have to have righteousness to go to heaven. The blessed person, the Bible says, is when God counts righteousness and they didn't have to do anything to work for it. That's the blessing. Verse number 7 words it this way. It's when someone's lawless deeds forgiven. What about lawless deeds? What about all the evidence? It's forgiven. Verse number 7 also words it this way. It's when someone's sins are covered. David wrote that in 1000 BC. Again, I'm not harming the scriptures. Would anybody adjust a word in that? David says you have the blessing when your sins are covered. 1000 BC, sacrificial system. Old Testament animals, their sacrifice to cover the blood covers the sin. What word would we use different than covered in the New Testament? Because Jesus died on the cross, the real Lamb of God. Our sins are not covered. Our sins are removed. They're gone. Washed away. They don't exist. It's much better. David was looking forward to the, the true Lamb of God. We're looking backward and saying, praise the Lord, my sins aren't covered. They're gone thought about this Friday. By the way, verse number 8, words it another way. Verse number 8. So what's the blessing? The blessing is when someone's sin doesn't count. I realize I shortened that one, but I like how I shortened it. Did you catch it? I want you to feel the weight of that. So what's the blessing? It's when someone's sin doesn't count. What about all this? Yeah, but it doesn't count. Says who? God says it doesn't count. But you've got an empty column over here on the righteousness side. Well, God says, if I believe, he's going to put Jesus' righteousness there. The thought occurred to me Friday morning. I got my calculator out, did a little math. I'm 47 years old. I've lived over 17,000 days. Some of you have lived more than that. And these young ladies that were up here for graduation, they've not lived anywhere near that. You know what I started thinking about? Go with me. Uh, 17,000 days for me, 47 years. I honestly thought... How many, it's a question mark and it's an exclamation point. How many, many times have I broken each command of God in my 17,000 days? How many, oh, how many. I'm told not to ever love anything more than the one true God. In my 17,000 days, how many times each day within the 17,000 days have I been more affectionate, more loving towards something I could see, a person, an object, or an experience, a hoped-for experience. I am thinking about that all the time, more than I think about how many, many times has your poor pastor broken the first commandment or seen something, the second commandment. Maybe I didn't make it an idol, but I treated it because I looked at it. I wanted it. I thought about it. It's got my energy and affection, and it gets my time how many, how many times, you remember when you told a lie and you're like, yeah, I've told some of those. You remember when you told whole clusters of lies? Remember that? Because this lie means you've got to tell this one, which means this one, and exaggeration and deception. And... But when I'm a nine-year-old kid in the mountains of western North Carolina, because I put my faith in Jesus, gone. Millions and millions of offenses in the sin column. Millions. What happened to all that? Oh, they're not covered. They're removed. And because I put my faith in Jesus, because he's the son of God, the one that God accepts his payment for sin on the cross, it appeases God's wrath. I put my faith in him. I receive his righteousness. I don't have any righteousness. I get all of Christ's righteousness. Bam, that's gone. Bam, look at all this. This shows up. I'm on my way to heaven. And it's set. That's what Paul is trying to drive home. Verse number 13, words it another way. Romans chapter 4, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. 
That's the promise. That's the blessing. If I could boil it all down, you say, what is the blessing? The blessing at its core is a relationship with God and all that goes with it. And I mean that in the strongest sense of the word. Relationship. What's the root word? Relationship, root word is? Relation. We could boil it down even more. You say, what is the blessing? I'm going to tell you, the blessing is when you are in a relation, but it's stronger than that. It's not like, hey, I kind of know him. No, you are related to God, and because you are related to God, the only natural son of God died on the cross. He gives you all his righteousness. God sees me just as righteous as he sees Christ. He now adopts me. Christ is the heir of all the world as the son of God, all the universe. I'm co-heirs with Christ. I'm the son of the living God. I've been adopted. I'm an heir of God. That's the blessing. How do you get that? Just by believing what Jesus did and stop trying to earn your way to heaven. That's the blessing. Chapter 5 through 8 is going to tell us all the ramifications of what it means. Chapter 4, it's how. That's what it means. Here's how it happens. Second thought. What's the underlying question? As we get ready to look at verses 9 through 12, what's the underlying question? Now I've got to confess. I'm getting ready to put my own spin on this one point. We're going to get to the main question in a moment. You say, why are you putting your own spin? Because we in America, we don't grapple with circumcision very often. 95% of you did not use that word in a sentence this past week. You hadn't even thought about it. Uh, the Roots probably did. <laughs> they just had twin boys. Hey, are you going to have them circumcised or not? Uh, and I don't know what they did. So because we don't, look if you would again at verse number 9. Look at the, the question. I want to kind of put a little spin on it, kind of set it up, what we're going to be looking at. Is this blessing, this relationship with God, is the blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. I'm going to ask it several ways. So hang on. I hope I do the scriptures no harm. If so, chuck it. Don't worry about this. X that part out. And really try to sink your teeth in the third point. But I think this might help us. Asking it a little different way. Here's what Paul is saying in verse 19, 11, 12. Here it is. Is this blessing of a relationship with God only for the spiritually educated and obedient? Is the blessing of God and all that goes with it, is it only for the biblically literate person who knows about the Bible and obeys what they've learned? Is it only for them? Is it only for those who know about Judaism and circumcision and they study all that up and so they, they get involved with that and so for me to go to heaven, I'm going to become Jewish and I've got to learn all their things and, and, and then I've got to obey what I learned. Is it only for that group? Do I have to go two for two? i got to know that, I have to obey that. Or could it be possible for the less spiritually educated? I'm going to ask it a different way. I didn't have room to put all this in your notes. This one is in your notes. Let's write this down. What's the underlying question? Could a person have the blessing of a relationship with God and all that goes with it, here's the question, by only hearing and believing the New Testament message about Jesus. You need to think about that. Can a person have the blessing of a relationship with God by only hearing and believing the New Testament message about Jesus? Or do they have to know all the Old Testament do's and don'ts? Real simple, do you have to know all the Old Testament or a lot about it or at least a pretty good percentage to become a Christian? My question is this, if I run into someone this afternoon who knows nothing about the scripture, do I have to start at Genesis to lead them to Christ? Or is it possible for them to truly get a relationship with God just by hearing about Jesus? You say, what are the basic facts again about Jesus? Here it is. Could a person be saved by just this? Realizing they're a sinner who's offended the one true God. He's holy. He's just. He's going to punish their sin. But he loves us. So much that he sent his son, his name's Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. He appeased the wrath of God against sin. And then God made this wild promise. If we'll believe what Jesus did on the cross and ask, it to, ask him to let it count for us, then we get this relationship and I didn't even go into the Old Testament. Is that possible? I'm going to ask it one more way. Each one of these gets a little more specific. And those of you that 
been saved a long time and you like to think, chew on this one. Just how much Bible does one have to know to be saved? You ever thought about it? You say, I like to try to win people to Christ. How much Bible do they have to know before they get saved? By the way, I hope you know that I love the Bible. And those of you who have ever heard me talk to someone about their soul know that I use a lot of Scripture. So the question is, how much? Well, there's differences of opinion. I thought about this the other day. Not to offend, I'm just being honest with you. Some people believe you not only have to use a large amount of verses, but they think you have to use the exact wording of a specific translation or they can't get saved. You ever met someone like that? Did you catch that? How much Bible does a person have to know before they go to heaven? Somebody's going to listen to this on our website a little bit later and I might get a phone call. That's fine. Bring on the phone call because I re- they honestly think you have to have X amount of scripture and it has to be in the wording of the translation. Really? Where is that in the scripture? So then someone asks, all right, Jeff, what do you think? Here's my answer. I want to use a lot of scripture as much time, as much scripture as time would allow me with a person. But at the end of the day, listen, people are saved by hearing and believing the good news about Jesus. That's it. You say, so how much Bible do you use? We need to use enough Bible truth for them to have Bible understanding of those things that I just said. I need to use enough scripture so they know that it's not me. I'm not promising you eternal life. Here's what God says. Well, what if you get some of the wording slightly mixed up and you don't quote it exactly? Did you tell them they're sinners and that God's going to have to punish their sin, but he loved them enough to send Jesus to die? Can you remember John 3, 16? God sent his son to die on the cross, and if you'll believe in him, if you'll just digest. Could you win somebody to Christ with one verse and not even perfectly quoted? Yes. Yes, you can. How do we get saved? By putting our faith in Jesus because we hear the good news about Jesus. And so Paul's saying, how much Bible do you have to know? Do you have to be an expert in the Old Testament? And to answer his own question, you know what he does? Let's talk about Abraham again because he's the example. Why is he the example? Because he lived 500 years before the Old Testament was even written, just like we live 2,000, 3,500 years after it was begun to be written. Let's use Abraham as the example. So now... What's the main question? Verse number 9 again. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Real simple question. We need to ponder. Was Abraham saved by circumcision? That's our question today. Was Abraham saved by circumcision? And again, we're sitting here saying, well, I don't really know about circumcision. In fact, I realize in this auditorium right now, don't feel bad. Please don't feel bad. There's somebody sitting there right now going... I don't have any clue what circumcision is. What is it? It sounds like it's in the Bible a lot. I've heard it before, but I never had the courage. What does it mean? Nobody really seems to want to talk about it. What is it? Okay. Well, real simple. Circumcision was the most controversial issue, issue to the early church. It was the number one most controversial issue. What is it specifically? It was a surgery. What is it? Here it is. It's the cutting away of the foreskin of the male anatomy. So when baby boys are born, they're born with a piece of foreskin on the male anatomy. If you're circumcised, they have that cut away. A lot of people believe there are medicinal, medical, physical benefits of having circumcision. Why? Because that piece of skin can allow for filth. Just by living life, the digestive system, filth can be built up. And that filth can not only, it can actually cause disease. And you could pass that disease on when you have sexual relations. And so if you're circumcised, you cut that piece of skin off so that there's much less filth. You're like, now I know why everybody doesn't talk about it. <laughs> okay, got a little more than I wanted to know. Let's kind of, but listen, it's so important. It's in the Bible. We need to talk about it. For the Jew, listen, it wasn't about physical. It wasn't about a physical benefit. For the Jew, hear this. To them, it was related to the covenant that they had with God. It was an act of obedience because of the covenant they had with God. You see the reference in your Bible. Go, if you would, back to Genesis. You want to hold a spot in Genesis uh, for the next little bit. Genesis chapter 17. Look at Genesis 17. Verse number 9. Really, we need to go back and read verse 1 through 8 with it, but we don't have time. Genesis 17. 
Abraham. It's now time for him to be circumcised. So God comes to him after a long gap of time. There's like a 13-year gap between chapter 16 and 17. So look at verse number 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. Remember, God approached Abraham. Abraham believed. God counted his belief as righteousness. Now God says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So you're going to have that operation. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So, So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Man, we can say a lot about circumcision. I want to just quickly point out a few things. Number one, Jewish males, as you just read, were circumcised the eighth day. In the book of Philippians, Paul says he was circumcised the eighth day, just like the Bible called for. The other day, I'm reading in the book of Joshua, and it's kind of, I think I was was sharing it uh, with with Brother David uh, on the men's retreat. It kind of shocked me. Have you ever read Deuteronomy and flown right into Joshua? So, I've never been in the military, and I've certainly never been in, in, in battle like that, and I've never been in hand-to-hand combat that's going to be to the death. But they, everybody knows this is what's happening. Israel has been given these promises about this land, and they're hovering just on the other side of the Jordan, and it's getting really close, and all the nations over there know it's getting ready to happen, but they're kind of probably taking a little bit of comfort knowing that the Jordan River is kind of blocking them, so we don't know how they're going to get across. And then all of a sudden, Joshua chapter 5, early Joshua, God stops the waters of the Jordan, Israel comes across and then the waters go back and the Bible says the hearts of the kings and the people on the other side, their hearts just melted like, oh no, it's getting ready to happen to us what God did to Egypt. He just dried up the Jordan River long enough for them to cross. They're on our side now. But here's the kicker. And this confuses me. All this time, hovering on the other side of the Jordan River, kind of got a buffer between them and the Canaanites. They've got their soldiers ready. We're getting our soldiers ready. There's getting ready to be this big clash. There's going to be a lot of dying, a lot of bloodshed. God waits until they cross the Jordan River, and now God says, now I want you guys to get circumcised. What? I want surgery, all the males, all the soldiers. You're going to kind of be out of commission a few days. Why didn't we do this? They didn't ask that. I'm asking that. God, why didn't we do that on the other side? God waits till they get in the land, and it's that important. I want you to be circumcised. Here's the problem with circumcision. Jews in Paul's day believed it secured salvation. Say that again. Jews in Paul's day believed it secured salvation. Have you ever read the book of Galatians? You ever read that? Paul goes to a what we would call Eastern Turkey, and he shares the gospel about Jesus. They've never heard this. People start believing in Jesus. They really got saved. He leaves and moves on to other cities. Here come some people from Jerusalem behind him, and they know about Jesus, and they preach about Jesus, but they also know about the Old Testament. And they come behind Paul, and they tell the Galatian churches like if they were here today. Hey, we got a visiting speaker. we got a, we got a, a, a couple of guys from Jerusalem, very powerful preachers. And they stand up, and they tell all of you who think you're going to heaven because you put your faith in Jesus, oh, by the way, you're not really completely saved. If you've never been circumcised, you need to be circumcised. In essence, what they're saying is you need to become Jewish to really seal the deal. You say, yeah, okay, well, what about that? Yeah, you ought to read it sometime. Paul got ticked. Paul hears about what? He goes down to Jerusalem. He says, we're going to settle this. And we have, I, mean, I, I think he was fired up. They had this conference, and the resolution of the Jerusalem council is they started sending out letters saying, those guys are not, they don't represent us. You don't have to be circumcised. You Gentiles, you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. You can stay uncircumcised. Paul had been preaching faith in Christ alone. And the Judaizers say, no, 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 you have to have circumcision. We got Bible, Genesis. Paul says, that's Old Testament, this is New Testament. Jesus has paid for sin. It's only by faith. Look at verse 10. Back if you would, hold your spot there. 
Back in Romans 4, verse number 10, I told you we'd get a little technical today. Verse 9 and 10, is it for the circumcised or can it also include the uncircumcised? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? When did Abraham really get saved? When did he get this relationship? When did he have the blessing? When did he have righteousness pronounced over him? When did it occur? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Can I translate that? I think this is one of your notes. Here's what they're saying. Paul's asking, we need to settle this. Was Abraham saved simply by faith in Jesus? Or was it a blending of his, not faith in Jesus, that would not have been Abraham, 2,000 years B.C. Was it simply by hearing and believing the promise of God? Was that all that saved Abraham? Or was it that faith in the promise of God along with his obedience to the commands of God? Was it this blending of things? Is that not a note, I think? Was it a blend? So that's the question. And so what does Paul do? He says, let's settle this by looking at the chronology of the life of Abraham. And again, time will not allow. It's not that important that we dig into all the various contexts and aspects of the verses that we're going to use. But on your handout, would you write this? I want you to look at this. It's going to be, it can be confusing, but it's very important. Paul wants us to see. There's a reason the Holy Spirit had Moses write what he wrote way back in the book of Genesis about the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 16, verse number 16. I think we'll have this. Look at that. There's, this is just a reference, okay? Real, real quick, what does it say? Write that number down. A- Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. How old is he? He's 86 when he has his first son by another woman that's not officially his wife. There's a story behind that, okay? But he's 86. Second reference point is in Genesis 17, verse number 24. Look what the Bible says there. Abraham, now he's called Abraham, was 99 years old when he was circumcised. How old's Abraham? Abraham's 99 when he's circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And he also has Ishmael circumcised. So how old is he when he's circumcised? He's 99. How old was he when Ishmael was born? 86. Now look at, notice the references. They're on your handout. Watch, we're jumping, right? First, we wrote something out of Genesis 16. Everything's in chronological order. Then we looked at something in Genesis 17. Now we're actually going to go back to Genesis 15. Look at verse number 6. So we're going back in time. And he believed the Lord. What happened? Here comes God. Hey, God, God says, Abraham, you see all those stars? Can you count them? 1, 2, 3, 4, 9,870. I can't. Okay. You're going to have those kind of descendants. You're going to have, but Lord, what about this? And I... I I don't even have any children yet. Okay, I, the man in my house is it's like one of my servants. He, he would own everything if I were to die right now. No, he's not going to be the one. You're going to have one of your kids. This is back in chapter 15. And the Bible says Abraham believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Listen, you know it's technical. When did Abraham have righteousness declared over him? Before Ishmael was born. We'll not look at the reference, but if you want to look up, uh, it would be on the screen. But Genesis 16, verses 2 through 4, you would see that Ishmael is born in chapter 16. So let's put it all together. Ready? Watch this. Let's go from your perspective. Chapter 15, Abraham's declared righteous. Chapter 16, Ishmael is born. Chapter 17, 13 years after chapter 16, 13 years later, he's circumcised. Now, I just want to mess you up just a little bit more. Ready? Go back to Genesis 12. Go back to Genesis 12. You're saying, okay, is this still chronological? Yes, we're going back in time. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said, and as we mentioned last week, the phrase there really means the Lord had said, because God appeared to Abraham twice. He appears to him first in, in Ur of the Chaldees. Now he's going to appear to him sometime later in a city called Haran. This is later even than the first time. This is a repeat, apparently. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. This is what he told him back when he was in Ur. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave here, go there. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I love what verse 4 says, so Abraham went, and the, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
can we put this all together again? We're going to kind of leave the technical part in just a moment. Watch this. Genesis 12, we know that Abraham, the second time God appears to him, he's 75. He's already in a relationship. He already has the blessing. He's already has righteousness. He's already believing. That's chapter 12. He's 75. We fast forward, we find that he has a son, Ishmael, who's 86. He's 86 when he has Ishmael, and he's 99 when he actually gets circumcised himself. You know what that tells me? It means Abraham had a relationship with God at least 24 years before he ever... Now, your note's going to say 14 years, at least 14 years. That's according to chapter 15. But he had a relationship with God at least 24 years before he ever possessed the physical sign of circumcision in his body. Why? Because back before he was 75 years old, he believed God. God said, that's when you got saved. And he gets circumcised here. What does that mean? Is Abraham the first Jew, yes or no? Yes or no? Is Abraham the first Jew? Yes. By Jewish standards, how long did Abraham live as a Gentile? By Jewish standards, 99 years as a Gentile. He becomes the first Jew. But God, Paul is reminding his own nation, listen, he's a Gentile for 99 years and he actually got saved before he was 75. He doesn't become a Jew and get circumcised until he's 99 years old. At least, again, 24 years later. God withholds the sign. Make your way, if you would, back to Romans 4. Because I have a question. And I want to answer, you guys feel free to answer out loud. Romans 4. Based off what we read earlier in in Genesis 17, uh, really, uh, when you think you know the answer, feel free to say it out loud. All you can do is be wrong. It would be the worst thing. It's not bad. Not a big deal. We're all wrong sometimes. Here's my question. If salvation for the Jew was brought about by circumcision like they think, that's what sealed it. That's when they entered the covenant. If salvation for the Jew was brought about by circumcision, then they would have been saved at the age of what? Eight days old. Completely apart from faith. Does the eight-day-old boy have faith in God's promise? No, he has no language. He has no understanding. He's a sinner. He has no understanding there's one true God. He can't, he's just... That belief is saying that that little child is saved at eight days old completely apart from faith because of what someone else had done to them. Now, I'm not trying to be mean, by the way. I'm going to oversimplify this because this doesn't represent all the people that do this, but I'm just going to use this because it kind of fits here. Them believing that that little baby gets saved at eight days old because a surgery is performed on him is about as silly as a person in 2017 thinking their little baby is on its way to heaven because you have a preacher pour water on its head. That's, that's what? what? What do you... Now, I know many do that and they say, no, the child is not saved at that moment and it's basically the equivalent of us dedicating babies. I get that. But there are some people who think because mom and daddy... Get the little baby, and they have the preacher pour, I guess, magic water on them. The baby's now saved. And they go through the rest of their life. Oh, I got baptized when I was a little baby. My, my mom and daddy, and what was that preacher's name? Oh, yeah, he did that. And really, that's when you got saved. That's silly. That's crazy. That little baby may have got wet, but he's going to have to trust Jesus on his own. He has to, or he'll never get saved. Look at verse 11. There's a tricky little phrase here. We'll not get too technical for long, but I just want you to see, because I want you to, don't answer out loud, but kind of think, because I might be wrong. I I hope I get this right. Verse 11 says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was, that's the little three-word phrase that bothered me. The purpose was, the purpose of what? Is that saying the purpose of circumcision? I don't think so. The purpose was, verse number 11, hit it again. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Here's what I think the purpose theory is. God waited 
God, why did you wait 24 years? If you have this relationship, this covenant, if Abraham's living in the blessing before age 75, why did you wait till he's age 99 to actually give him the sign of circumcision? I think verse Romans 4.11 answers it. The purpose was for this. God intentionally waited because he doesn't want Abraham to confuse the sign of a covenant and relationship with God with the real thing it represents. Let me say it again. A picture or a sign, again, a picture is just that. It's a picture. At my house right now on our walls, we have pictures of my family. But my family's here. My wife is right back there. I think my kids are down here in junior church today. I'm up here. We're not hanging on the wall down there, but a picture is. And so, God, why did you wait? Because I don't want Abraham to get confused and, and put those things so close together that he thinks the circumcision is actually what saved him. I want a gap of time so that he knows, oh, he was saved there. Here's the sign of the circumcision. And I realize by saying that, the Jew goes, okay, hold on. Time out, buddy. Hold on, time out. Then what's the whole point of circumcision? Good. Glad you asked. It's in verse 11. Here's the answer. Circumcision is plainly called a sign and a seal of the righteousness which he already had. It's just a sign. It's an indication. It's a picture. It's a picture of what? Again, not to be risque. Get it. What's circumcision a sign of? Filth, disease, sin. Cut it away. It's already been removed, so physically it's a sign of the cutting away. And I realize there are, these little Jewish boys are only eight days old. Has that even happened to them? The Jews had a special covenant with God that we today don't have. So they would do it in anticipation that that child, so that child, that little eight-day-old boy that was circumcised, as he gets of age, he's going to have to put his own faith and trust in the Word of God. He's going to have to receive the covenant. But it's put into him, kind of pointing to what's going to happen, the cutting away of the old lifestyle of sin, contamination, disease. And so that's kind of the message today. And I know some of you sitting here right now say, whew, I'm glad we got that out of the way because I don't care about that circumcision. I don't think about circumcision. So this passage isn't really important. Is it not? The last thing I want to go down is this. And I want to ask you to give me just a few minutes. We don't ask about circumcision today, but we ask a different question. Paul, dealing with a Jewish audience, had to teach them, did circumcision save Abraham? no. What do we ask today that's very similar, it's not exact, but many people wonder, does baptism, does baptism save us? Or we could ask, is baptism important? So here's the two questions. Does baptism save us? No. Is baptism important? Yes. Why? Write these three reasons down. Why is baptism important? It's not exactly like Jewish circumcision, but it's much like it. Write this down. Why is it important? Number one, baptism is a public testimony of our identification with Jesus. Just like a Jewish person would be circumcised saying, I am in a covenant with, the, with Yahweh, the I am God. A Christian, when they're baptized, is saying, I am being identified with Jesus Christ. We had baptism here two weeks ago, I believe it was. This should never happen. No one should ever get in the water. Hey, come on down. Listen. I baptize you, my brother, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Baptize. No, no. What always precedes that? A public profession. It could be worded. Hey, are you on your way to heaven? Yes. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Yes. They could say verbally, yes. They could even do this. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You know him as your Lord and Savior? That's for the really shy ones, right? Every now and then somebody gets real talkative. Hey, have you, have you ever put your, faith, put your faith in Jesus? Actually, I have. Let me tell you about it. The other day, and, and off they go. And what are they doing? They're giving a public profession. I am with him. I am with Jesus. It's important. Does it save them? No, but it's important. Why is it important? Baptism serves as an outward picture of what took place when Jesus died, buried, rose again. It's, it's a picture. Death, burial, Resurrection, when he died on the cross, was buried and rose again, that counted for me. That whole rising again, we don't leave you under the water, it's important. Here's what it's saying. Just like Jesus came back to life from the grave into a new kind of life, a person that gets baptized in essence is saying this, you should expect to see a different me than you saw before. I'm going to be living differently because of what God has done in my life. Is it important? Yes, 
I can't remember. If, do we have Matthew 28 first? I can't remember. Do you see this? This is the Great Commission. Why is it important? This one's real simple. Go, therefore, make disciples. Go win people to Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. You know why it's important? Say, does baptism save us? No. Is baptism important? Yes. Why? Because it's the first step of obedience to Jesus Christ. What it means is, Jesus, I'm not only taking you as my Savior, I'm taking you as my Lord. If you say be baptized, then I will be baptized. Can we have Romans 10? Look at verse number 9. Say, how does a person get saved? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can I kind of boil that down very quickly? You say, hey, Brother Jeff, I'm a Christian. I'm just not going to get baptized. Then that should bring into question your lordship of Jesus. I get it. You're nervous. You kind of, for whatever reason, maybe some don't like water or you're scared of crowds or whatever it may be. But the bottom line, if you really got saved, God's Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And when you just look on that screen and you see Matthew 28 and Jesus says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Something in you, the Holy Spirit should say, I've got to do that. I need to do that. I need to go public. I need to be identified with him. I need to let people see pictured what Jesus did on the cross counting for me. I'm going to go down in the water. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to come back up. And I'm going to live a different kind of life where he is my Lord. That's not what's going to save me. But that's how I'm going to live because he saved me. That's key. And if you refused, I'd be wondering like, did you really get saved? Did you really? I think our last text is Acts 10. Let's go back there. Acts 10. For time's sake, I think I'm going to skip ahead in the reading to verse number 38. I'll, I'll jump in about verse 37. What's the biblical order? And I'll tell you the book of Acts is a very transitional book. It's a book of transition. So since we're talking about baptism as we're closing today, what's the Bible order? And you say, why, why is the book of Acts, why would you say about it being a transitional book? Because in the book of Acts, you'll see people that are saved, born again. They have a relationship with God through Jesus, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. Today, every time someone gets saved, they immediately, invisibly receive the Holy Spirit. You're getting ready to read something a little different, but I want you to notice the order. Look at verse 37. The apostle Peter is in a man named Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. In fact, he's a Roman soldier. Cornelius goes to the Jewish synagogue. He knows all about Judaism. He's been studying it, but he's not a Jew. He's not circumcised, and he knows it. And Peter knows that he's not circumcised. But God has brought Peter and Cornelius together to show us once and for all the order of the New Testament. How does a person get saved? Here it comes. If you've missed it before, here it comes. Peter stands in Cornelius' house, this unsaved Gentile who wants to know about God and how to have a relation. I want the blessing. Peter says, verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. You've heard this. Beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You remember? And I'm, I'm, I'm seeing... Cornelius sitting there going, yeah, yeah, we, we've heard all this. We know about John the Baptist. We've heard about this Jesus that you're getting ready to talk about. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. You've heard this, Cornelius. Yes, I've heard this. Yes. So he's really in tune with what Peter's preaching. And then Peter says, we, he has six Jewish brothers that went with him into Cornelius' house. Verse 39, we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. You say, how does a person get saved? By hearing and believing, verses 39 to 44. Here it is. Peter says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Jesus, and Cornelius is like, yeah, I've heard about it. They crucified him. Yes, I remember hearing that. They had our people do it. The governor, Pilate, he didn't really want to do it. But your people, I know, my people did it. My people, the Jews, put him to death. Verse 40, Cornelius, you've got to know this though. God raised him, from, raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. Who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And Cornelius is tracking. Okay, yeah. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, he's the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus, this one that they crucified, right? The one that came back from the dead, yeah? He's the judge of every man. Really? Wow. And then it happens. Peter says, to him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius, you ever heard anything like that? Anybody that believes in Jesus, they receive forgiveness of their sins, what David talked about in Psalm 32. And here says Cornelius. He don't say a word, but I know what Cornelius was doing on the inside because verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter are amazed. The Jews are looking all like, what's going on? They're not circumcised. They're not Jewish. This can't be happening. Oh, it's happening. Look. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter saw everything he needed to see. Peter's up here preaching. Man, he's giving a good evangelistic sermon. He's probably ready to give an altar call. And he's like, whoa, don't need an altar call today. How do you know? They're already saved. They're just believing while I'm preaching. They just believe while I'm preaching. Didn't even wait for me to get to the end. They just heard it. Okay, I'm doing it right now. Holy Spirit falls on them. Verse 47, Peter declared. No doubt turning to the six guys with him, the six Jews said, Hey, can anyone, for, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Write this down. What's the Bible order of the New Testament? Here it is. You hear the promise of God. It's what Peter preached. You hear the promise. You believe the promise. You hear it. So how do I go to heaven? You hear it. What Peter preached in verses 37 to 44. You hear it. You believe it. Just like Cornelius did. What happens? You receive the Holy Spirit of God immediately. You don't see it in our day. You don't hear it. I'm not saying that can't happen. But that's not the test. Boy, that's a whole other sermon. We're not going to get off on that. And then what happens? Then you get baptized. That's the Bible order. As we close, would you look? I said last passage. Look at chapter 4 of of Romans one more time. Would you look at verse 11? Because I think in verse 11 and 12, there's three sets of people. I might be wrong. Listen, I might be wrong, but I think in this room... There are four kinds of people. Everyone in the room would fit in one of these four categories. I want you to be listening to put yourself in the proper category. Only you and God know. Here it comes. Category number one is represented in verse number 11. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had. That's my word. He already had. He already had the righteousness by faith way back when he, before he was 75 years old. But he received the sign of circumcision while he was... He, uh, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So here's group number one. You ready? Who are they? They're here today. In this room, there are people who have believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're trusting him. They're on their way to heaven... But they've never been, I'm not going to use the word circumcised. I'm making it to fit us. They've never been baptized. They're in the room right now. You're here. You have trusted Jesus. You are on your way to heaven. You have never been baptized. Abraham was just like you for 24 years. You say, are they really on their way to heaven then if they haven't been baptized? Absolutely, just like Abraham was on his way to heaven. Group number two is represented in verse number 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. Here's the second group. There's people in here today. You have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you've completed the outward indication of that faith. You've been baptized. Group number one, they have faith, haven't been baptized. Group number two, you have faith, and you have been baptized. I'll tell you, that's the goal. Go public for Christ. You say, wait a minute. You said it implies a third group. Look at verse 12 again. To make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely. 
Why does Paul say there's a group that not merely but also? Because there are some who merely. Did you catch that? Can we regroup one more time? First group, they've trusted Jesus as their Savior, just have never got baptized. Second group, they've trusted Christ at some point in their life and they've got baptized after that to let everybody know. Third group, they merely have been baptized. In this room, I hope I'm wrong. I'll be shocked. When we get to eternity, we're going to find out who it is. If it's you, you need to listen. Someone in this room, this is you. You've been baptized. You have baptism. You just don't have faith. First group has faith, no baptism. Second group has faith and baptism. That's the goal. Third group, I was baptized. And anytime someone talks to you about when you became a Christian, you automatically start talking about when you got baptized because you've heard about it somewhere. I've heard about this baptism thing. I've lived down south. All the churches talk about it. So you did that, but you don't have faith and you don't have real salvation. You know what? I'm not being mean. My job is to warn. You are what the Bible calls, what Jesus said, are tares among the wheat. You look just like everybody else, but when we get to eternity, we're going to realize... But they were baptized. But they came all the time. They had a Bible. had one of the big Bibles. And they knew all the lingo. But they didn't have faith. They thought the baptism was what was saving them. Them? No. They did that, yes. And he told them every week not to trust the baptism. But that's what they were trusting. They went, they went to hell believing in, in water baptism. And there's a fourth group. So what are they? They've never had faith in Christ and they've never been baptized. Which are you? Which are you? One group, they're saved, just never been baptized. I would ask you, why not? There's somebody, you're in here right now, this is you. You got saved in the last few weeks and you hadn't told anybody. You've sat in this auditorium on a Sunday morning as we've preached a message and walked you through exactly how to be saved. And you simply only put your faith and trust in Christ. That's all you did. You're not trusting your works. But the only thing is you have never been baptized. I'm wondering, why not? Are you afraid or are you ashamed? Are you ashamed of him or are you afraid? This is somebody, man, he's talking about me. Right now you're doing this. How's he now? This is you. You got saved last week or a month ago or two months ago. Clear as day, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. But you don't want to say it out loud because you're afraid if you do, then the people around you are going to expect you to live differently. And so you're going to stay hidden and quiet. You're living in disobedience. You'll never be what you should be for the Lord until you say, I need to take that first step. I got to be bold enough. He died on a cross for me. He went public for me. The least I can do is go public for him. I'm nervous about it, but that's me. I got saved. I've just never been baptized. And the next time we do one, I, I need to do it. And that's you. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Potentially four groups in our midst this morning. I really want you to ask yourself, which one am I? Take an honest look. This is, such, this is the most serious point of our message today. Everything's been leading to you to do something with it. It's not just, oh, I'm informed about circumcision. What are you going to do with it? You need to evaluate. So I'm going to be real simple, some simple questions I want you to answer. Hear your own voice in your head. Here's the question. Do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life? Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. Answer within yourself. Do I have eternal life? And as you answer, I would ask you, are you sure? I'm going to go further. Don't say it out loud, but put it into words. Put it into words. Why do you think you will live, in, will live with God forever in heaven? Why will you live in heaven? Say the reason. Say the reason. I will live in heaven because, say the reason. And now answer this. Is that a Bible reason or is that just something you feel is right? 
you don't have a Bible reason, you're on very thin ice. I just ask you not to scare you. I'm just being, it's my job. Are you really willing to risk your eternity? You get one shot. Are you going to risk your eternity on something shaky as what you feel should be right? Or do you say, I know I have a Bible reason. It matches up with everything you just read and preached today. I'm going to ask everyone here this morning, would you please identify yourself? No one looking around. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand. No reason to deceive me. I'm not your judge. I'm not even going to try to memorize who does what. Just by way of confession. Put yourself in one of these categories. As I describe you, would you raise your hand? Is there someone here this morning you have genuinely been saved by faith in Christ and you have publicly announced it in baptism? Is that you? Would you raise your hand? You say, I have I've believed Jesus and Jesus only and I have been baptized. Praise the Lord. Many, many hands. I'm wondering, is there some in this second group? So our hands are down. Second group. Is this you? You say, I have a real relationship with God by faith in Jesus alone. But I've never followed him in the outward sign of baptism. I really don't know what I'm waiting on. I see one to my left. Who else? I see one right here, another right here. I see about six, seven, eight. Say, I've never followed. My question is, what are, you, what are you waiting on? I'm not going to try to memorize who you are. Here's all I'm going to say. It is important. It doesn't save you. But you've not done the first step of obedience next time we have that you ought to say I'm getting in there this is very very specific this is the most crucial who here this morning no one looking around you say Jeff man that's me I've been baptized I just have never had the faith I've been trusting my baptism I've never had the faith if that's you, you say, oh, I have a baptism. I was wet one time, but I've never put my faith in Christ. Is that you this morning? Would you raise your hand? Anybody here this morning? Would you raise your hand? And lastly, anyone here this morning, you say, Brother Jeff, I've never been baptized, and I have never placed my faith in Jesus. I've never done either one of those. And the Lord's talking to my heart today. If that's you, would you raise your hand this morning? I'm not going to embarrass you. Would you raise your hand? Anybody like that? You say, I've never been baptized. I've never put my faith in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your working in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for giving us an example that we can match our lives up beside the life of Abraham. Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that according to the raising of a hand or the lack thereof that Lord, I pray that since no one raised their hand, that confessing they don't have faith.